the Sunday Sermons Podcast. When my grandparents died, we were looking through all of their photos, and uh, uh, I wasn't there. Not all of the family was there, but we were seeing some photos that were made a long time ago. And uh, those who were there said, we'd like to have those. So they tried to photocopy those. Well, it didn't turn out quite like the original picture. Now, they have improved photocopying since then. But then uh, as others, you know, found out about it, they said, oh, well, I'd like to have a picture. Well, here, you can photocopy my photocopy. And then that went on to others photocopying their photocopy. And uh, it doesn't work out real good. Kim made this logo for our church here. Looks really sharp and beautiful like this. Everything is clear, sharp. And uh, then we said, well, let's try a photocopy. Well, it's not quite as clear and sharp. It's a little bit faded. So we said, well, let's make another photocopy. Oh, can't get these pages separated. Okay. So that was the second one. We go on. This is what we ended up with. Okay. When you make a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, especially with, uh, with photographs, it just doesn't turn out the same. You know, the church had an original plan that Jesus made. And he said, this is the way that I want the church to function. <clears throat> this is your mission. This is the way we go about it. But through the centuries, things have happened to where we started making photocopy of photocopies of photocopies. And things went south. But Jesus did promise that he would build his church on this bedrock foundation of belief that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And his church began in a glorious, marvelous way. It was for everyone. He said, whosoever believes... God's not willing that any should perish and was trying to get this message out to everyone. And whosoever came had a responsibility to serve. Now, three questions here. Has the church looked the same all through the centuries? Unfortunately, no. Uh, Is the likeness still as sharp and as clear as maybe what it was when the church really began to expand Maybe not. And what has happened? And how did it happen? And what needs to be reformed? And can it be reformed? The Dark Ages that was covered last Sunday was a horrible time for the church. The image was not only blurred of what the church was supposed to be, it had little resemblance to the way the church began or the way that the church should function. The original scriptures were written in Hebrew and Greek, but in the first three centuries, the Bible was translated into hundreds of languages as the church began to expand, including Latin, so everyone could understand God's word. But after Constantine became a Christian and Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of Rome, a whole lot began to change. And as the Roman Empire dissolved and melded more and more with the church, the structure of the church evolved (coughs) alongside 
this feudal system that separated the clergy from the people and a real hierarchical class of clergy. St. Jerome in 382 AD uh, came to the rescue here. Pope Damascus asked Jerome to revise the Latin scriptures for use in the church services. He and his team referred to the original text that they had as much as possible, but had very little access to the Greek scriptures. The Vulgate that was produced was an honest, earnest attempt, a copy of a copy. But as we review the history of the church, we must understand one thing, and John and I are trying to make this clear so that we don't offend feelings and feel like that we're trying to bash other people or other denominations. The church has always been and still is and will always be under constant spiritual warfare between the forces of good and evil. Satan and his demons are leading the forces of evil. We cannot place blame for any departure from the original plan on any person, on any group, or any denomination. The Apostle Paul explained it very clearly in Ephesians 6.12. He said this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. These are unseen forces because they work through the lives and the voices of those that they have deceived to hide from being seen and make us think that our warfare is against fellow human beings. Now, these evil forces have two weapons, only two, the lie and temptation. Their method of warfare is to target the vulnerable sinful nature that's inherent in mankind to reject and rebel against any law or higher authority that would restrict them from doing or having anything that they want to have, do, and enjoy. And these temptations that they bring on us are based on lies, contradicting truth, always contradicting promises, but always with promises of pleasure that appeal to mankind's selfish, sinful nature. And these promised pleasures strengthen the temptation to believe the lies. And just as the Holy Spirit works to produce the character of Christ in Christians, the forces of evil work to produce all kinds of evil in the lives of those they lead astray. But more importantly... The forces of evil attacks are always against the truth, against the commands, against the teaching in God's word to confuse the world and to obstruct and divert Christians from the mission that Christ has given the church. Now, over the centuries, this warfare has raged back and forth in partial victories and partial defeats for both sides. So there have been significant times in the Old Testament history and in the early church when God's people were strong and following the word and they did glorify God. Much was accomplished. But there were also significant times when God's people were led astray and they have aided Satan's cause. Unfortunately, every time God's people were led astray, the forces of evil increased 
and their influence increased. And every time the church failed, their numbers decreased and their influence decreased. Now, Jesus said his followers were to be the light of the world. But when the light grows dim, darkness increases. And with every victory, the forces of evil won, there was a huge setback in the church's progress in accomplishing the mission. The Inquisition, the Crusades, they were a horrible misrepresentation of what the church should be and how the church should function, how to preserve doctrinal purity, how to overcome the enemy, and how to grow. The result was a corrupt, coercive, controlling religion. But again, once you understand this is not a personal affront to offend anyone. It's just what happened to the church in the spiritual warfare in that time of history. Christians dropped the ball. But how does this happen? How does a movement as vital as that of early Christianity find itself having drifted so far from its foundation? It was not a freak of history. The church had simply been led astray and lost sight of its reason for existence. And it had lost contact with its founder. Could the church be led astray and diverted in our time? Yes, it has. It's happening. We need to learn from the mistakes of others so we don't repeat those mistakes. But how did it happen? Sociologists say that in the beginning of a movement, people encounter God in life-changing ways. But with successive generations, the encounter tends to fade like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And life transforming, that started as a revolutionary and life transforming movement, eventually subsided into a codified religion, much different than what Christ had intended. But you see, during the Dark Ages, the Roman Emperor Constantine and the Roman Catholic Church translated the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures into Latin, known as the Latin Vulgate. And it became the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. The photocopy faded somewhat as it switched. But the problem was that by the 13th century, Latin was only understood by the scholars. So the common people did not have access to God's word. And this corrupted the church by giving the church leaders control over the people who had to accept what the church leaders said that the Bible said. And the church leaders then became corrupt using their control over the people for self-serving purposes. And the church even took strong measures to keep the scriptures from being translated into the common language of the people. But Rules, rituals, ceremonies were substituted, designed for people to obey and to be considered faithful. You do these, you're faithful. But the more rituals and rules and ceremonies replace a fresh daily encounter with Jesus and with the Word of God, the more Jesus is removed from his central place in the life of the church. And unless believers maintain the daily personal 
relationship with Christ and the Word. Dedication, enthusiasm begins to fade. And over time, the rituals, the ceremonies, the rules will gradually replace the personal relationship with the Lord. It becomes more important to do these things than to maintain that relationship with Christ. And then the decline becomes inevitable. And authentic Christianity is subverted. It becomes a religion. We're vulnerable today too. The scriptures must always override any man-made traditions or doctrines. We must always hold ourselves and each other and our church leaders accountable to keep the church on track. But can you see that not having the scriptures available to the people made a difference? They didn't know what it said. They had to rely on what they were told. Now, often it takes a major crisis to catalyze the deep change that's needed. And the Lord could not leave his church in that condition. So he began to raise up men to produce the needed changes to begin the change, to begin getting the church back on track. And hence, the beginning of the Reformation. We can think of it sort of like a computer. I'm sure you guys have had problems with this. You're working along and all of a sudden, this computer's going haywire. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. I can't get it to work right. What do we do? Reboot. Right? And when we do reboot, then that takes it back to the original form that makes it perform like it was designed to perform. And the scriptures say that Jesus, in Hebrews 12, 2, says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And he has the primary template for personal discipleship and how the church should be formed and function. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the spiritual warfare goes back and forth in partial victories and partial defeats for both sides. And throughout the Reformation, changes began to be made to get the church back on track. But there was always opposition to the good that was being done. But Christ does not abandon his church. There's numerous stories in the scriptures that we know of, particularly in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament. Think about how the spiritual warfare went. God sends the Messiah. What do they do? They crucify him. What happens? He rose from the dead. He ascended back into heaven. But the disciples and the other 120, they're hiding, worried about what's going to happen and the persecution coming to them. And then Pentecost, and the church begins with 3,000 and begins to thrive. And then it goes on. It starts to expand. And the apostle, or Saul of Tarsus, was leading that persecution. But God works, and what happens? Saul gets converted, becomes Paul the apostle, and begins establishing the churches to the Gentiles. The church continues to expand, gets into Rome. What happens? Huge persecution. But what happens eventually? Constantine, the next emperor, becomes a Christian. Now the church has peace. It has power. But that's when the Dark Ages began. In 1382, against the wishes of the Roman Catholic Church, John Wycliffe, who was a Catholic priest and a seminary professor at Oxford University, 
translated much of the scriptures into English, the language of the people where he lived. And he wrote articles about the luxury and the pomp of the local parishes and their ceremonies. And he wrote several articles questioning the privileged status of the clergy who had bolstered their powerful role in England. And the Catholic Church declared John uh, Wycliffe a heretic. They intended to burn him at the stake, but he died naturally before that happened. But they were still so upset, they dug up his corpse, burned it at the stake with all of the articles that he had written. Goods trying to come, spiritual opposition rises up. During that time of John Wycliffe, only the elite clergy had copies of the Vulgate. But the common people needed the scriptures. Well, Johann Gutenberg, who's famous for perfecting the printing press, uh, in 1455 created the first mass-produced Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. It was a beautiful work of art and was made available to the individual parishes. However, it was still the Latin Vulgate translation, not the language of the common people and still not available to all the people. Well, probably the most notable person during the Reformation was Martin Luther. In 1517, Luther took a stand against the corruption that had infiltrated the church. And you're familiar, you've heard the story. He nails his 95 thesis to the church, the Wittenberg church door. But the purpose was he wanted to raise up a debate with the church leaders about the indulgences and several other practices of the church at that time. Now, not everyone understands that he was not wanting to start a new church. To, to Luther, the Catholic church was the church. It was just needing reformation and get back to the original pattern. However, in 1521, Luther was declared a heretic and was excommunicated. This led to the start of the Lutheran Church and the start of the Protestant Reformation. Go a little bit further. 1525, William Tyndale translated the New Testament directly from the Greek to English, the language of the common people there in England the common language of the whole British Empire. And this was also considered heresy. And William Tyndale was burned at the stake in 1536. So after years of suppressing the people, the people began to rebel as people gained access to the Scriptures in a language they understood, they gained a new respect for God's Word. In efforts to further revitalize the church, new groups besides the Lutheran church begin to break away from the Catholic church and several little denominations begin to form. Going a little further, 1532, King Henry VIII declared himself the head of the all-new Church of England, creating an evolving version of the universal Catholic church and thus created a second major Protestant church. Now, it was different from Luther. He hated Luther, and Luther did not respect Henry VIII either. But though many were trying to get the church back on track, Satan used this to create strong divisions among the believers. 
And just like Christ foreknew, it confused the world concerning the validity of the gospel and Christ. And in spite, but in spite of the damage done by the division, the corruption was exposed. And even in the different denominations that were formed, there were great things that happened. Listen, here's some of the great things. First, the scriptures were translated in a language the common man could understand. Yay, we get the word of God back to the people. Consequently, there was an increase in individuals' believers' desires to study the word, to trust God more, to obey the word, and to hold each other accountable and the church leaders accountable for obedience. The Reformation reminded God's people to respect his word above any human authority. And for a time, it led to a stronger desire to strengthen the church and return to the mission of the church to take the gospel to their community, their country, and to the whole world. They got back to making disciples, which was what Christ wanted us to do. Go to every nation, preach the gospel, make disciples. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. But where does the church stand today? How are we doing in accomplishing our mission? Let's take a look at ourselves. Seriously, how are we doing in accomplishing the mission? What wrong doctrines or practices or structures have crept into the church in our lifetime that needs to be removed? Or what emphases, doctrines, or practices have crept out of the church that need to be restored and brought back in? Are we allowing Christ to be the head of the church and follow his original pattern? Is the word of God the final authority in morality and truth? Because it's being challenged and rejected in many ways. But the question is, Are we making disciples who will make disciples? It's not just enough to wear the name Christian. We need to see ourselves as disciples. And we need to follow this mission to make more disciples. Because making disciples was clearly at the front and center of Jesus' approach to changing the whole world. How did he start it? He got his apostles. He he chose his disciples. He spent time with them. And then he sent them out. Now, why the emphasis on disciples? Why, Why not just Christians? Well, the term disciple emphasizes the developing and maintenance of a living connection with Jesus. The living connection and relationship should be, should be the defining quality of the Christian life. We know him. He's our shepherd. We hear his voice. We follow him. And the lordship of Christ cannot be limited to things that we don't do, though there are definitely behaviors and attitudes and ways that we speak that need to be removed if we claim to be a follower of Christ. And his lordship must be over all issues that are common to everyday life. No exceptions. The task of discipleship is the lifelong project that that we accept of literally becoming like Jesus. As God, Jesus was our Savior and Redeemer. 
As man, he is our model. We're to be like him. Discipleship involves the active modeling of my life and his life and the willingness to let him live his life in me and through me. Doing the same kind of things that Jesus did for the same reasons that Jesus did. I want to throw something at you here. Think about this. Discipleship is who Jesus would be if he were you. Are we living like that? The church as we know it today in America seems designed to exclude active discipleship and to encourage stunted forms of Christianity. One theologian said non-discipleship might be the single biggest flaw in the Western form of Christianity. It seems to promote the idea that Jesus is to be believed in and worshipped but not followed. Can we imagine? Discipleship is not optional. Dallas Willard, though, made the observation that churches in the Western world have not made discipleship a condition on being a Christian. He said one is not required to be a disciple in order to become a Christian and may remain one without any progress toward becoming a disciple. And the tragedy of this is that our witness is a vital link in giving the claims of Jesus credibility in the eyes of non-Christians. And if we're not being what Christ commands in the eyes of non-believers, in their mind, we render all revelation false. Wow. Whether we like it or not, we carry the burden of living out the truth in such a way to establish its credibility among those who watch how we live. Christ is the truth inasmuch as he is the way. But he who does not follow in the way abandons the truth. Do we see this? The lordship of Christ cannot be restored in the church until his lordship has been restored in the lives of the individuals in the church. And centering everything on this bedrock that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the key to the renewal of the church in every age, in every situation. And our belief and understanding of Jesus is the singularly most important factor in shaping our mission in the world. How can we say he is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, and not be fully committed to what he says we need to do to reconcile ourselves with God? It's got to happen. Discipleship requires a direct, living, personal relationship with the Lord and his word. And the loss of this life-giving relationship is catastrophic to the church. Our belief and our understanding of Jesus is the most important factor in shaping our mission in the world. If we fail here, we fail. But discipleship is to go beyond the individual to the congregation. And the congregation then becomes a mighty movement of Christ-like people in every area of culture and society. We're made for a mission, 
And God is at work in the world and he wants us and expects us to join him. Our mission has two wonderful, great privileges, working with God and representing God. We get to partner with God in building his kingdom. Paul says, we are co-laborers. And he says, we are workers together with God. And God wants us to have both a ministry and a mission. A ministry is your service to believers. And this is important for the church. Our mission, though, is our ministry to non-believers, to take the gospel to the world. The mission that Jesus had while on this earth is now our mission because we are the body of Christ. And as his followers, we are to continue what Jesus started. Jesus calls us not only to come to him, but to go for him. Our mission is so significant that Jesus repeated it five times in five different ways in five different books of the Bible. It's it's like he was saying, I really want you to get this. Have we got it? We need to be reminded that God holds us responsible for the unbelievers who live around us. You remember his words to Ezekiel. You must warn them so that they may live. If you don't speak out to warn the wicked to stop their evil ways, they will die in their sin. But I will hold you responsible for their death. As we progress in time with everything going on in this world, there is a growing interest in the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And there should be. We're running out of time. But just before the Lord ascended to heaven, I like this story, the disciples asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? His response was, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples wanted to talk about prophecy. Jesus quickly changed the conversational topic to evangelism. Because if we want to be used by God, we must care about what God cares about. And he, what he cares about most is the redemption of the people that he made. He wants his lost children found. And nothing matters more to God than this. And the cross proves it. William James said, The best use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. Our mission has eternal significance It will impact the eternal destiny of other people. So it's more important than any job, any achievement, or any goal that we will reach during our life on earth. Because the the results of our mission will last forever. The consequences of all else will not. Nothing else we do will ever, ever matter as much 
as helping people to establish an eternal saving relationship with God. And if we fail to fulfill our God-given mission on earth, we will have wasted the life that God gave us. We need the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had. He said in Acts, he said, My life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. But the lordship of Christ can't be restored in the church until his lordship has been restored in the lives of the individuals in the church. Have we restored the lordship of Christ in our lives, in our congregation? Our answer depends on restoring his lordship in every individual. Do you have a decision to make? Is he Lord? We all want him as Savior, but he's got to be Lord. And we've got to be doing the work that he's called us to do. We've got to restore the plan. Make this, be a disciple. Make disciples and accomplish God's will to get that good news out to all people. We need to seriously consider this. Uh, you may not want to come forward. You may need a prayer time. And just say, God, forgive me. I've just not been on this like I should be. I have withheld submitting to you in certain things. I want to repent. I want to change that. I don't know what decision that you've got to make, but people, we are in the most important work in the world here. Christ is depending on us, and we want to glorify him with our lives. I just leave it to you for whatever decision that you make. If you want to come and give your life to Christ, if you want to place membership with this congregation, if you want to just come and pray, whatever. But let this be a special time where we reboot if we're needed to. Let's stand and sing.